Well, let's turn to God's Word once again. Let's open to the book of Ephesians. And we are in an expository series on the letter to the Ephesians, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And what we do here, if you're new, first of all, welcome. We're glad to have you. And you'll want to know that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Sometimes in between books, we'll, we'll do some doctrinal sermons, but we go passage by passage, and that's the way God inspired it to be written. So, for example, the Ephesians would have read this letter from beginning to end in the church service, probably in one sitting, and they would have referred back to it and read it over again. And so we want to go through it in that way, in the way that God inspired Paul to write it. And we want to handle even the difficult passages, even the difficult paragraphs, including this paragraph 3 through 14 in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's deep in theology. It's, it's one of those that, as a new believer, you can pick up many truths and, and many great blessings that God has given us. But even as a mature believer, you're still learning from what's being said here. It's high theology, lofty theology. In fact, just the two verses we're looking at today, it took me quite a bit of study just to figure out how does this phrase attach to that phrase, and how do these two verses link up, and what's the argument that Paul is making here? So we want to examine that today. I've entitled the message, Spiritual Blessings in Christ, Part 2, because we started the first part last week, Predestined for a Purpose. Last week was chosen by the Father. This one, as you'll see, is predestined for a purpose. I want to read the whole section to you so you get the context. Context is important. I want you to see the whole context so that when we zero in on verses 5 and 6, you'll see where the interpretation comes from. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. This is all about praising God for what He's done. And it's not just God the Father, but you also see God the Son, and you also see God the Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this passage. And Paul has written to the Ephesians, and now speaks to us today in such a way that we ought to consider what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done in the work of salvation so we can properly praise them. Even if you've never seen this passage, you could praise God. 
But this gives us more insight, more insight into God's grace. It shows us what the Father has done, first of all, in verses 1 through 6. And then what the Son has done in 7 through 11. And then 12 through 14 deal more with the Holy Spirit and what He's done and continues to do for us in salvation. We get to praise God for what He's done for us as believers. We started last week and we looked at verses 3 and 4. That was chosen by the Father. We looked at verse 3 talking about how God has given us all these blessings in Christ. And the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Not earthly blessings. You can't pull the spiritual blessings out of your pocket and show your friend. It's not blessings to make you wealthy. Blessings to make you healthy. Some of those things will be given to you in the goodness of God. But these are spiritual blessings located in the heavenly realm. Where Christ is. Where we, it says, already are with Christ there in a spiritual sense. And now in verse 4, he begins to tell us what those are. Verse 4, he chose us in him. That's speaking of God's election, God's sovereign election. And we looked at that last week. We considered the objections that are out there to God's election. But there it is in verse 4 in Scripture, before the foundation of the world, before God ever created. It says that he, he chose us. Paul's talking to believers. In Christ. And the ultimate goal of that election was so that we could stand before him holy and blameless. Now this week we look at 5 and 6. And he's just continuing the argument. For many of us, if it's the first time maybe you've seen this doctrine of election, verses 3 and 4 are enough to digest. But Paul goes on. It's almost like he wants to make sure we understand that it's God's grace. That it's God's doing. That it's God's actions that it's God who initiates salvation. They haven't been saved as long as many of us. And he is writing to them lofty high theology because he wants them to know. Did you just listen as I read who's doing the action throughout that passage? Who's the one planning? Who's the one accomplishing? Who's the one bringing about a person's salvation? That's the point Paul's trying to get across. We can't boast, but it's God's grace. And ultimately that points us to his glory. And he's going to finish out verse 6 with the praise that we should give God for his glory, for his grace. Well, I've entitled predestined for a purpose, and that's where we want to end up as the purposes of predestination. But first, we've got to talk about what is predestination. And so I've got a simple outline today. Verse 5, we need to look at what is predestination. There's a lot of different views on what predestination is. Just like election that we looked at last week. People have Varying views. There are whole denominations that are formed up eventually in church history around what is predestination. How is the, the gospel to go out if you believe a certain way on predestination? And our question today is what does the Bible say about predestination? What is it? We have to define it. What is it? We really need to start back before verse 5. You see at the very end of verse 4 it says, In love. Your Bible probably starts a new sentence there. So there's a period, blameless before him, period. And then in love, he predestined us. Well, some debate and say that in love goes with the previous verse. But remember, the verses in your Bible and the, even the chapter breakdowns are not inspired. It was all one document. And then later chapters came along, chapter divisions. And it wasn't until 1551, when Bibles were being printed by the printing press, that somebody thought it would be a good idea to put verse numbers on each verse, each sentence, so we could reference it and memorize it that way so it's it's all right it's not as if 
Paul messed up. Paul's letter is perfect. It's God's inspired word. But in 1551, whoever chose to divide it here, I think it's better with our translations today. The sentence starts at the end. In love, the end of verse 4. You see that? In love, he predestined us. So just defining predestination, Paul tells us it starts with God's love. It's out of his love. That was the motive for predestining a people for his own possession. It was an act of love. It's not as if God's cold and calculating. He didn't do it out of anger. He didn't even do it out of judgment. I mean, those who are not saved will go to hell and they will be judged. But God did it out of his love, it says. In love, in, that, in the sphere of love, God chose. In the sphere of love, he predestined. It reminds us of Jeremiah 31.3. God's talking to Israel and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting means eternal. It goes back before the creation of the world. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Why did God draw Israel? Why did God choose to save Abraham and his descendants? Some of them physically, of course, all of them physically saved, but some of them spiritually saved as well. Why did God choose to do that? Out of his loving kindness, out of his love. That's where it all starts, God's love. So when people want to debate predestination, we need to consider it's God's love. It's God's love that was the motive. The, almost we could say the cause. Nothing causes God to do something because love is within him. God is love. This matches up perfectly with Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Romans eight twenty nine. It's a famous passage, especially Romans eight twenty eight. That God works all things for good to those who love him. And then the next passage, Romans 8, 29, the very next verse, Paul talks about predestination. And he goes along this chain. We call it the golden chain of salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those, uh, he, they, they were called, they were justified, they were glorified. It's a golden chain. Nobody gets out. The chain can't be broken. That's how we know God does all things for good for those who love him. But he starts off there in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew. Now, in a modern mind, we look at foreknew and we think God's looking into the future, maybe. Maybe God's looking ahead to see who will believe. But that's not what the word means in its context. It's not what the, the Greek word means. And especially the Hebrew. In, in the Old Testament, to know meant an intimate relationship. And you can trace the word throughout the Old and the New. Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. God knew Israel. He, he doesn't learn anything. Even if he looked into the future, he's not learning anything. God preordains all things to come to pass. But when Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, the idea is that he decided to have an intimate relationship with them, a special relationship, a loving relationship. The idea is foreloved. Those whom he foreloved. Mary did not know a man which means she had no physical intimacy with a man before Christ was born. The word know there indicates a close relationship. And so we get to this idea of foreknow in Romans 8.29, and it's the idea of that God loved in a special way a group of people. And then Paul says this same group he predestined. So that matches up with Ephesians. In love he predestined. Romans 8.29, he foreloved and he predestined them. Same author, two different books of the Bible. Paul's trying to get across to the churches. They have to praise God for what he's done out of his love. So it's out of that realm of love, out of that motive of love. And we come to verse 5. He predestined us. 
The Greek word is proorizo. Originally, it was a word used to mark a spot on the horizon. Orizo, we get our word horizon from it. And out on the horizon, a traveler would place a, a mark in his mind, and that's where he was going to go. And the pro on the front of orizo means beforehand. So he puts a, a mark before. He marks out. He, he decides upon beforehand. He predetermines. He foreordains. The word comes up quite a bit in the New Testament. And Paul's teaching us here that God planned out beforehand to save a people for himself, a people for his own possession. That even though none of us deserved it, none of us deserved to be saved, he chose out of his own love, and we'll see other reasons later, but it has nothing to do with us. And he chose who he would save, and he marked them out, and he predestined them, it says. He predestined. He decided beforehand. It's slightly different than the word election. Election has to do with the actual choosing. So election is saying that God chose out of all mankind, he chose a people out of his love to be holy and blameless in Christ. Uh, predestination has more of the act of a purpose in mind. We sometimes speak of them as the same, and they're, and they're two sides of the same coin, election, predestination, but they're they're different facets. They're different facets of the jewel. And we can turn around and keep praising God for all these nuances that he shows us in the Bible. So election focuses on who. Out of all the people who he's chosen. Predestination, marked out beforehand, it's emphasizing the what. What is the purpose that he chose them for? Well, what's he marking them out for? Salvation, yes. But salvation even goes further. And he's going to tell us the purposes after we're saved. What's the purposes? What are the purposes? So election is who. Predestination deals with the what. I thank God for that word predestination. Even though it's argued, even though it's debated, even though sometimes Christians divide over it, it comes up, as I said many times, Acts 2.23. If you want to look at Acts 2.23, God's plan, the Father's plan to put Christ on the cross was predestined. It was foreordained. Everything from the fact that Christ would offer up himself on the cross as a sacrifice to the Romans wanting to do it. It was all foreordained by God. They did it out of their own will, of course. They, they chose to do it. They, they sinfully desired it. But all of that was foreordained by God. It says that in Acts 2.23. Peter's preaching a sermon there in Jerusalem to the first major group of believers. And in that sermon, he's saying, This man... He's talking of Christ. Acts 2.23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. See, again, the word foreknowledge there, it's foreloved. God didn't learn something whenever Christ got crucified. He didn't look into the future to see what would happen. It's saying that he planned it from before the foundation of the world. It was predetermined. And then look, it says, you nailed him. You Jewish people, he says, nailed him to a cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. Where does predestination and, and man's responsibility come in? Well, here it is right here. It was God's plan all along, but he's holding them responsible. Why? Because he says, first of all, but just because God predetermined it to happen doesn't put the blame on God. They're responsible for their sin. But God has preordained everything that comes to happen. Well, that doesn't make sense, you know, and philosophically, and it doesn't work out. We've got to trust the Bible first as Christians. What does it say? Then we have 
to study it and try to work things out. But at some point, we don't know everything. We can't know everything. That's God. That's God's prerogative. God doesn't even really give us a lot of clues as to why he does what he does. But when he does reveal things like this passage, we can't reject it. We can't fight it. We accept it. We love God's word as Christians, and we can struggle with it and study it and wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, it says he predestined us. And praise the Lord that he did. You see that word, us? He didn't just predestine some nameless, faceless group of people, but it's us. It does not say that he predestined just some, some people out there somewhere, and maybe, maybe you'll be saved if you wander into that group. It doesn't just say that he predestined to adoption, but it says he predestined us. Who's he writing to? Ephesian believers. Who does this word speak to today? Believers. Unbelievers can read this. It's not going to make a lot of sense necessarily, but maybe they'll hear the love of God here. Maybe they'll see the love of Christ as he comes to redeem a people. But he writes this letter to those who know they're in Christ. Us. God predestined individual people. Not just Christ to die on the cross that he predestined, but he predestined us to be saved. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who know we're in Christ now. That's why you see in him all the way throughout this passage. It's those who are in Christ. Well, how do I know if I'm predestined? Well, that's, that's the question. You look at this passage and it says, those in Christ, us. Those of us in him, he chose us in him. Am I in Christ is the question. As an unbeliever or maybe somebody who's not even quite sure if they're saved, you don't ask, did God predestine me? Because you don't know the mind of God. You have faith in Christ. That's what the Bible calls for. You have faith in Christ. You turn from your sins. Now you're the in him people that he's talking to. Now you're the us. And now you look back and say, oh, that's how he did it. I thought I did something, but now I learned as I read the Bible, God did it all. Praise the Lord that he did. Predestination is sweet. It's a sweet, comforting doctrine. We talked about that last week with election. It's, it's comforting. Spurgeon used to say, it's the pillow. God's sovereignty and salvation. That's the pillow you lay your head on at night. It's comforting. It's soft. It's warm. It's in his love that he predestined us. But it's only the us. If, if you go through your whole life and you're never in the us, if you're never in the him, in Christ, then you can't say, that Christ predestined you. You can't say that God elected you. But as a believer, predestination is, is something that we should love. It's something we should cherish, not reject. Expository preaching is good because we can't just skip these tough ones that people don't always like. We just go verse by verse and we see what God has inspired here. I love it. Not because I've always loved it. I didn't know about it for seven years and then I got exposed to it and then I struggled with it and then I had to believe it. It's in the Bible. It's comforting. We love it because it's a, it's a blessing to us. That's what he says here. It is a spiritual blessing. And we're to turn around, look at verse 3, blessed be the God. We're supposed to bless God. We're supposed to praise God for it. Not to get wrapped up in necessarily debating it, although that might be the case with some folks that want to do that, but ultimately it's to bless God. It's to praise Him. Do you realize you, you would have never come? We would have never be saved in the first place if it wasn't for this doctrine. It's necessary. Election and predestination is necessary. We would have never come to God on our own. 
That's what the Bible teaches. It would have never come if it wasn't for God doing something first. Jesus says this, John 6, 44. No one can come to me. No one. Not one person. Not the most holy person in this whole earth, if there was such a thing, can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying that people have rejected him in John 6 and they've gone away and that's really upsetting the disciples. And he says, look, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And those same people the Father draws, I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to resurrect them. Now, draw doesn't mean woo them. It doesn't mean try to convince. The, the Greek word for draw is, is haul in. It means to haul, to pull, to drag in. Not against their will. Their will has been changed when God gives them a new heart. But that's part of the drawing. God does all the work in drawing men, Jesus says. Drawing men, drawing women to himself. It's the same word used to draw in uh, fish nets with Paul and uh, with Peter and the other disciples who are fishermen. They cast out the nets and they draw them in. Same exact word in the Greek. Nets don't draw themselves in. Nets don't go out, catch fish, and draw themselves in. No, Jesus is saying, praise the Father because he's the one who sent me and he draws you to me. Nets would never haul themselves in. Sinners would never pull themselves to Christ. God has to initiate the work and we're to give him thanks because if we think we've done it, what do we do? Boast. We give ourselves the thanks. We think we're smart. We think we're godly. But what about faith? Where does faith come in? Well, you do have to have faith. You do have to have faith. You do have to to trust. That comes back to man's responsibility again. But only because God first gave you that ability, it says. See, the paragraph here starts with what God the Father has done. Do you know when we see faith and belief? Look down at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, there it is, you were sealed. So at the moment you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means a true believer can't lose their salvation. We'll come to that. That's when belief is first mentioned. He's talking about the order of salvation, how it was accomplished. Belief does come in, but it comes in later. In our lifetime, we believe. But that's granted to us by God, the Bible says as well. 1 John 4.19 we love because what? He first loved us. The only way we can love, the only way we can love Christ, the only way we can love other believers is because God first loved us. Indicating predestined in love idea. John's going all the way back. R.C. Sproul in his book, Chosen by God, writes about predestination. He says, to be sure a human choice is made. And he even says it's a free human choice. But the choice is made because God first chooses to influence the elect to make the right choice. The basis for God's choice does not rest in man, he says, but solely in the good pleasure of the divine will. We do make a choice. Jesus says, you must believe in me. You must turn from your sins. We do make a choice. But even that is not something we can boast about because the Bible points us back to God even for that. Thank God that he granted repentance and faith. We can't come on our own. We can't come unless God does something first. We'll look at a few passages. A believer, you have to understand, if it's left to ourselves, we would never come. 
when defining predestination, we have to deal with the issue of the fact that we would never come and no one would be saved if left to ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to come to it in the exposition, but I'll just read it to you. First five verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Dead means you can't do anything. Spiritually speaking, you were dead in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So he's talking to believers. This is what they used to be before God changed their heart in time. They walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That means unbelievers walk according to Satan's power, even if they don't recognize it. They walked according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You think children of wrath and those who are dead can just get up one day and decide of their own volition without anything from God to believe? Suddenly just, you're going to go from the children of wrath that the Bible says you are to believing upon Christ? No, God has to predestine, he has to elect. And he did that in eternity past already. Romans 3. Romans 3 is another one of those classic passages. No one, not one single person, not the nicest unbeliever that you know, Paul says. Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written. Now he's going to quote from the Old Testament. All the way down this list are quotes from the Old Testament. It's in the old, it's in the new. We would never come to God on our own. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. Not one. There's no exceptions. Christ would be the only one, but he's not even talking about that. He's talking about mankind here in general. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. No one's seeking after God, just of their own will. They're just not seeking God. They're seeking something else. They might call it God, but Paul says in And the Old Testament says, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, that's everyone, that is from Adam on, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. He's not being hyperbolic here. He's just quoting from the scriptures. Their throat is an open grave. This is describing unbelievers. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. He's proving that they're children of wrath whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. More proof. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None. Man's totally unwilling to come to Christ. Why? Well, he doesn't really say why here, but he proves it by showing all the sin that's in their life. Left to themselves, this is what the Bible says mankind is doing. That's why the flood came. God looked into the hearts of men. And what did he find? They always wanted to do evil, it says. Their intent was on evil always. So he brought the flood upon the earth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Just go forward from Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We began to see why man can't come. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. This is the verse. It lists two reasons mankind cannot come to God on, a, on their own without God predestining without God regenerating a man's heart and calling them first. But a natural man, who's a natural man? Those who are not yet expressing faith. Those who are not saved. Those who are unbelievers. He's already talked about a spiritual man. That's the person who's saved. A natural man does not accept 
the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him. So the first reason is they don't accept it. It just seems foolish. The things of God seem foolish. Why are those Christians always trying to, to stay out of trouble? Why, why don't they go and have fun? Why not, because the gospel is the Lord's gift to us. And we don't want to continue in sin. But it says the natural man doesn't understand spiritual things. He just doesn't accept them. He doesn't want to accept them. In other words, that's just speaking of his will. Talking about free will. Well, here's the will. It doesn't want to accept the things of God. And then the second part of the verse, he cannot understand them. You see the and there? That means it's the second one. First one, he doesn't want to accept it. Second one, he cannot. He's not able to because they're spiritually appraised. And he goes on to say, you've got to have the Holy Spirit to be spiritually appraised, which means you've got to have the Spirit to believe and repent, which is regeneration. Another verse, back to Romans. Romans 8, 7. It's the last one we'll look at here on, on what's commonly called total depravity. The fact that our whole nature is depraved since Adam fell into sin. We cannot come to God of our own volition and power. Romans 8, 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Who are these people with the mindset on the flesh? Unbelievers. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. We don't have the ability. Naturally speaking, we don't have it. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's Apostle Paul speaking here. So we go back to Ephesians. And we try to understand this idea of predestination. Go back to Ephesians. I didn't finish that, that section in verse 2. But just look at 2.5. Or two, four. Here we are with children in wrath where, where we don't want to come to God in our natural state. And then it says, but God in 2.4. Being rich in mercy because of his great love. There it is. His great love with which he loved us. Why did he love us? We're children of wrath. We're following Satan. Why did he love us? That's back in chapter 1. In love, he predestined us. But God is the one who changed it all. It wasn't but, it doesn't say but you, but man, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love. Even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He did it. By grace you have been saved. He did it. So thank the Lord for predestination. Thank him for that. Because you would have never come to him. You would have never come. If you're a believer today, you ought to praise him for this. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He's, he's not saying God predestined because he looked forward in time to see what you would do. No, he predestined us to a certain purpose out of his love. Because of his love. Because of the kind intention of his will. Thank him. Praise him for it. It's the right response. Well, let's talk about why. Secondly, so that defines what it is. But why? Why? And that's the rest of the the passage 5 through 6. Paul's going to go on to say why. Because remember, predestined is focused on the what. Election is the who, predestined is the what. It's two sides of the same coin, but nuanced to, to describe what God is doing here. So when he marks people out for salvation, what's the purpose? To save them, yeah. But, but there's more description here. We're not, we're not asking what made God do it for us. We're not asking that necessarily. Why did God predestinate me? I don't know. And you don't either. It wasn't because you were smarter. It wasn't because you were better looking than other people. It wasn't because you were going to be some awesome saint, some, some amazing 
proclaimer of the word. If God has done that in you, that's great. Praise him. But the Bible never says that. We're not asking that. We're asking, what's the ultimate goal? What's the purpose? What's God's purpose for marking out believers before the foundation of the world? And salvation has a purpose as well. It's not just predestined to salvation, but what's the purpose of salvation? So Paul reveals that in verses 5 through 6, and he gives us a twofold purpose. There's really two things he mentions here. It's twofold. So first, the first purpose he gives us is to adopt us into his family. Why did he predestine a people? Why did he predestine us? He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, your translation really should say adoption as sons. If it just says sons or it just says adoption is incomplete, uh, I think modern translators, sometimes they don't want to put sons there, but, you know, there's daughters of Jerusalem in the Old Testament and there's, there's sons of the Father here. It's, it's okay. You want to be a son in this analogy, even as a, a woman. You want to be adopted like a son would have been adopted in the Roman world. Paul's referencing Roman law. And he's talking here about adoption, whereas they would take a young man or maybe an older man, but it would be not a young child, somebody who's reached the state of adulthood, which was about 13 in the ancient world. And a Roman wealthy patriarch, or maybe the emperor, is looking for an heir. And they would adopt somebody legally and bring them into the family. It's a technical term Paul uses here for adoption as sons. That phrase is just one word in Greek. Adoption as sons. Here's what it meant. To formally and legally declare that someone who's not your own child is henceforth to be treated and to be cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. So it's very similar to modern day adoption in our families and many of us, even in the, many of you in the church, where you bring somebody in and, and they're legally adopted and they become just one of your family, just like any child in the family. And they receive all the same blessings. And we receive that, Paul's saying, when we come in to God's family. He predestines us to adoption. And even more than that, and maybe this includes you as well, but there's inheritance. And not just monetary inheritance. No, no, he's saying there's a great inheritance when you're adopted. Uh, an eternal inheritance. That's why he's using this Roman law analogy. Because in the, in the Roman world, not only did you get to come into the family, not only did you get to be one of the sons and daughters in the family, but you got the inheritance. If you are a son chosen to be adopted from outside the family, you're brought in, you get the inheritance. And for an emperor, they're giving you the rule of the Roman Empire. That was the most common place this adoption took place. No matter who you were, you were, you were brought in young or old into the family given all the rights and especially the inheritance. And you see that mentioned. You saw it in today's passage in John 1. Jesus came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How do you get this inheritance? Well, in, in time, from our point of view, it's, it's having faith. But Paul's saying it starts even further back in predestination. He goes on in John 1, remember as we read that, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, this is being born again, spiritually born, not a blood, not based on your family line, if you're Jewish or not, not based on the fact that your parents might have been saved. It's not a blood, nor what? Of the will of the flesh. It's not based on man's will. It's not based on man's will, John says. What's it based on? 
It's not based on the will of the flesh, not based on the will of man, but of God, the will of God. It's the will of God. That's how we come into God's family. Galatians 4, Paul's making this analogy and he says, but when the fullness of time came, Galatians 4, 4, the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So at the right time in history, God sent his son to the world. The father sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What was the purpose? So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Same idea, same word. We need to be adopted into the family. We will be if he's predestined us. And if we know we're saved and in Christ today, then we have been adopted because it happens at the moment of salvation. Romans 8, 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. That's the unbeliever. They're under a spirit of slavery, spirit of Satan. Paul says you haven't received that, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it? Didn't he cry out to the Father like that? Abba, Father. That's a close, personal name in the ancient world. You can only call God Father because Paul's saying he predestined you. If you're in Christ today, you know that he's done this. He's predestined you to adoption as sons. So this doctrine is a legal declaration by by the divine judge, the divine judge who could judge us and send us to hell has adopted us. Yeah, and not just that, but he's brought us into the family and given us all the inheritance. It's all of it. What are those? What are those blessings? What is that inheritance? The gift of the Holy Spirit? All the good gifts that our Father has promised to give us in Scripture? Discipline. Fatherly discipline. We don't always like it, but if you're a son, you're going to be disciplined, the Bible says. Thank the Lord that he disciplines us. Unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of the same family. Not by blood, but because we've been adopted into God's family. And we don't just say that to make ourselves feel good. Paul is telling us that's the case. And it all started with predestination. You see how important predestination is to to believe, to understand? We can't just skip over it as a church or as individuals. What a great gift. We're children of God. We're children of God. We're not little gods. We didn't inherit his essence. But we inherited the rights that were given to Christ. The rights that were given to him as the firstborn. Eternal life. Eternity with the Father. Eternity with the Son. The firstborn. We're treated as true sons with an inheritance. Not every person is adopted into the family of God. They're just not. I mean, there's a talk in, the, in, in liberalism about everyone is a child of God. And that's true in the sense of creation, but we're not all receiving the adoptions. If you're not in Christ, you won't receive it. Not everybody does. You have to be in Christ. And that's where the next passage, the next phrase. So in love, he, he predestined us to adoption as sons. What does it say? Through Jesus Christ. All of salvation start to finish. It's in Christ. That's why it's mentioned over 11 times in this passage. It's in him. It's in Christ. It's through Christ. He's the mediator. He's the one who brought it about. God's the ultimate one who made it happen, but it's through Christ the Son. It's through him. The Son of God is the firstborn. He's the first one in the Father's household, and he's the one who brings us in. You can't get in any other way. You can't get to God somewhere else. No one else is going to adopt you outside of Christ. He's the one who made the way. He's the one we go through to get there. And even the predestined plan of God is to bring you through salvation in Christ. 
And it happened through Christ, but it was to himself. You see the end of that? To himself. Through Jesus Christ, to himself. This should be taken as the Father, not the Son. God's predestining you to adoption through Christ, ultimately to himself. Ultimately, you're going to be with God. Ultimately, it's for his purposes, for his glory. One commentator said, adoption's ultimate enjoyment. This was written a couple hundred years ago. Listen to how this guy talks. Adoption's ultimate enjoyment and blessing in God. Himself is our Father. His household we enter. His welcome we are saluted with. His name and dignity we wear. His image we possess. His discipline we receive. And His home secured and prepared for us we hope for ever to dwell in. It's to Himself. It's to God. And then it says, according to the kind intention of His will. Why did it happen? Why, why did he predestine some? What's, what's the purpose to adopt them? Okay, but why? 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 We always want to ask why. Well, this is the closest you're going to get to the kind intention of his will. That's the reason God predestined. It's not based on us. It doesn't say because of something you did. One more time, he's just reminding us it's not, not anything you did. It's God. And he's the kind one. He's very kind. He's got a kind intention, and that's his will. It was out of love. There's no room for human pride. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for patting yourself on the back. It's through Christ. It's to him, and it's the good pleasure of his will. God's gracious adoption of the believer is entirely due to the Father's own work. You did nothing. And it's according to his will. Why did he choose me? I don't know. But it says that was his good intention. He meant it for good, whyever, for whatever reason he chose me. So that's the first purpose. God predestined to be adopted as sons to the person and work of Christ. Secondly, ultimately, the final purpose, to praise him for his glory. To praise God for who he is. All of these other things are happening, but ultimate purpose of predestination is to praise God for his glory. Now, some translations are going to do different things with verse 6, the beginning of verse 6. So follow along as I read it in the NASB, because I think this, this translates it properly, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's not His glorious grace, although His grace is glorious, it's to the praise of God's glory. And that's shown through His grace. That's what the verse is describing. That's the ultimate purpose, to praise God for who he is, who is he? He has, he has glory. And that's shown through his grace. It defines the final purpose of God's predestination. The ultimate purpose is for God's glory, not your glory. Yes, do, do we get glorified? Do we get blessings? Do we get benefits? That's what Paul's talking about. Certainly we do. But ultimately, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Last soul of the Reformation. Soli Deo glory. Glory to God alone. We don't get the glory. How many times is he going to tell us that we can't boast, that we can't be prideful? How many times is he going to tell us? As much as it takes. The whole New Testament's full of that. Because what do we want to do even as Christians? We want to boast. We want to have pride. Even in subtle little ways. And he's just reminding us who gets the glory. Praise God. Praise God for His glory. I'm not speaking here of saying glory. He's not saying glorify God. That's the action 
glorifying God. He is worthy to be glorified, and you should do that. Here he's talking about the glory that is in God, the glory that is God. Glory is an attribute of God. It's the sum of all of his attributes. It's often manifested in a great bright light. When Christ was transfigured, they saw his glory. Peter says, we beheld his majesty. We beheld his glory. So physically, it's expressed in a a blinding light. It's what Paul saw on the road to Damascus, and it blinded him. But it's also used to summarize all of his attributes. His essential being, he is glory. God's splendor. And that's shown through his actions. Where do we see God's glory? We We don't start on the road to Damascus and look for God's glory to show up. We don't expect to have a vision of Jesus in heaven like John did in Revelation. Where do we see God's glory? Well, it says, in his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And you're going to see it finish out each section. So here's the end of the section on the Father in verse 6. Skip down to verse 12. After it describes the, the Son's work of redemption, to the praise of his glory. All of the Son's work was ultimately so that we could praise God for his glory. Verse 14 talks about the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 14, what do you see? To the praise of his glory. The ultimate purpose of predestination is for God's glory. He did it according to the kind intention of his will, but it was ultimately for his glory. And and God gets all of it, all of our praise. Ephesians 2, look over at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The praise of the glory of his grace. So God's glory, Paul is saying, it's a little difficult for us to see in English, but God's glory is shown through his grace. That's the point he's getting across. Ephesians 2, 8 9. What is God's grace? Why should we praise him for it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. The grace is not yours, the saving is not yours, and the faith even is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no man may boast. He's going to spend the whole letter just beating us up, isn't he? He's going to beat us up. Don't boast. Don't be prideful about your salvation. Praise God. Praise him for his glory. And it's shown to us in his grace. And it's all his doing. Unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. Grace means you didn't earn it. Paul even says in Romans that if you had earned any bit of it, then it's not grace at all. It's works. You can't earn a little piece and then say it's grace. It's unmerited favor to a prisoner who was on death row and is saved out of it and completely set free and given all the blessings. It's like the judge came and he took somebody off death row who was actually, actually guilty and says, you're free, come to my house, you get everything. You get everything in my house. That's an example of grace. We're to praise God for his glory, which shown to us in his grace. And it, how did that come to us? He's coming back to Christ again, which he freely bestowed on us. Literal translation is the grace which he freely graced on us. We don't say that in English, so they say bestowed, but he, it's a verb that he's graced us with his grace. God has bestowed grace on us freely. No one made him do it. We didn't make him do it. He did it all of his own accord. Because of his great love, he predestined us. 
It was undeserved blessing. And then where did this happen? In the beloved. You see how he ends the verse? It just keeps coming back to Christ. Don't boast. It's all God the Father who planned it. And you have to be in Christ to know that he planned it for you. In the beloved. Who, who's the beloved? It's Christ. This, this grace that's shown forth from the Father's glory, it was and only can be given to us in the beloved. You don't get God's grace outside the beloved. Who's the beloved one? Jesus Christ the Son. God says that to Jesus in front of witnesses, both at his baptism, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and at the transfiguration. A voice comes from the sky, from the clouds. The Father's indicating this is the beloved son. You want to be in the beloved. That's, that's what Paul's saying. All these blessings come from those who are in the beloved. God's grace. And remember, God's not looking down to see that you will believe and then working backwards to predestine you. But if you know you're in the beloved today, if you've repented of your sins, you turn to Christ, then you look back and you can express the kind of praise that Paul's talking about here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. Praise Him for it and realize you've been adopted. Because I, I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. No one can do it except God. So let's give thanks for God for predestining us to adoption for his glory. And let's live like it. Let, let's live like it. He didn't do that so you can just say you're saved and then go sin. Or live a life apart from him. Do it on your own. No, no. Let's live like it. That's the last three chapters of Ephesians. He's going to get there after all the, the doctrine in the first three chapters, but let's live like it. Let's live out our calling. Let's live out these great truths and blessings that Paul is talking about here. Lord, help us to understand how blessed we are if we're in Christ today. Help us to see what the Father has done. You, Father, have done so much. We would be, we'd be lost. We would be on our train track to hell. We would be straight there with no hope had you not predestined, had you not elected. Thank you. And thank you for teaching us about it so we can understand it's, it's a humbling doctrine. God, thank you for showing us your grace and how it came to pass. And even before the foundation of the world, your grace was being shown to us. Lord, I pray if someone's hearing this for the first time today that they would believe it to be the truth. It is the truth of your word. That they might see it is in scripture. And for those who are not in Christ, Lord, you can change their hearts. We don't know who, you, who you've chosen. We don't know, only you know. But we proclaim the truth of Christ and we pray that you will save some and then reveal this beautiful truth to them that they had been elected from before the foundation of the world. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the only one who can give us all of these blessings mentioned. In Jesus' name. Amen.